Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. This is Maurice Selby, MD. My name is Reed. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. And newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, the Food and Drug Administration, January 27th, released a draft on guidance on blood donation eligibility criteria that will ultimately allow gay and bisexual men to donate blood. Um, In that draft titled Revised Recommendations for Reducing the Risk of Human Immunodeficiency Virus Transmission, the agency updated these recommendations, these guidelines um, that were last updated in April and August 2020, right in the midst of the COVID, really at the outset of sort of the COVID um, outbreak. We're talking about decades, ladies and gentlemen, that this was sort of in the making as far as gay and bisexual men being able to donate blood. They could not do so before. And um, I can tell you just from my experiences working in trauma bays that this is, I think this will be a, a much needed boost to the supply of blood um, so I'm actually in favor, man. I think it's about time um, and looking forward to to them sort of finalizing these recommendations where we can see this pool expanded as far as potential donors. Yeah, definitely. It's been a, a super long time coming. It's kind of like an archaic holdover from, uh, you know, the AIDS time back in the 70s. And so this has been up for debate for a very long time and should have been changed quite a long time ago. But I guess it took like almost two consecutive years of emergency levels of blood in the, in the blood banks to finally get them to make moves on this. Yeah, man. And and the thing is, this is, there could be no better time. I mean, I think we've all sort of seen over the last few years with the, the COVID outbreak, the increase in violence in the country. Um, and I can tell you that, right. These resources are so sorely needed, man. Now the, the key part from this point on is getting the word out, right? Yeah. That's what I think is really going to be a, a, a big thing is that once we have um, these individuals eligible to donate, really getting the, the word out and pushing for that to happen um, because this is like something that's been ingrained in society, right? For so long um, that we might have a bunch of people that are just are not aware of this taking place. Um, and so that's what we're going to do on health in Harlem. We will continue to follow this ladies and gentlemen, um, and of course, on this program, get the word out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is something that on that day when that was released, when that news came out, definitely made made my day. Um, so, yeah, something to celebrate. Yeah, definitely. And I can understand the the mentality of people out there who are like, you know, they didn't want my blood for for so many years and feel kind of insulted about that. And now might not want to donate blood, mm. um, but it, it really is like a life-changing thing for people out there and if you can you know definitely i would strongly encourage you to to donate blood it's an experience you get free snacks true story um good snacks end, too which is i love i'm a big welch's fruit snacks fan we're not <laughs> sun chips but big fan of those so uh <laughs> yeah give me a bag of sun chips man i'm good and all the yeah all the nurses and and doctors are always so nice whenever you go they're they're out there helping you and you know, just giving you a great experience, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. And to think and, and to think you're helping so many people with that one donation, um, you know, as far as how 
sort of mm. the blood is fractionated into the different components. So it's not just giving blood, but you're giving, you know, all of these vital components of blood, platelets, um, the clotting factors, coagulation factors that individuals out there need for various disease entities. Um, and so, and not, right. So it's not just limited to blood loss is what I'm saying. And then you are impacting so many people with that one donation. And so that's why we wanted to get that out there. So yes, some good news, man. Good. I think we got good news in general in this program. Um, we're going to talk about milk, ladies and gentlemen, uh, milk madness, 2023. (laughs) It's going to be a two part series. Um, because at the outset, I think we started research on this and we're like, yeah, we'll just talk about it all milk and milk alternatives, you know, all of the plant-based milks. Um, I think this was sort of coming from uh, at least my confusion being in in the supermarket and trying to raise, you know, my family and make sure that my wife and children have a nutritious meal, (laughs) you know, or, or beverage and, it just got yeah. bewildering, like going to the grows. I think over the last few years, especially, man, where it was like, just got, I felt like it got worse. Where I was like, yo, what am I supposed to be drinking? Right. What is the ideal mm-hmm. um, milk as far as, you know, our health and longevity? Um, what is going to give us the best shot at achieving, right, ideal or optimal health? Um, not only for myself, but for the, for my family and children. And that was something that I just was not able to answer. You know, we hear, I think, yeah. a lot of mixed information out there as far as the benefits of dairy, but then the possible um, adverse effects of dairy milk. Um, and then we look at the plant based alternatives, which are uh, I think some of them are hella good. We'll get into that <laughs> um, taste wise. We've come a long way, I think, especially you talk about stuff like oat milk, man. We destroy that stuff in our house. But it was like, what are the benefits of that versus Mm-hmm. you know, dairy milk and what, how do we make that choice? So that's, that's why this, that's how this came about. That's how this came about. Yeah. And I get it folks. This might not sound like the most exciting conversation, but at least researching it, it's the kind of thing that the more you dig into it, the more interesting it gets and the more nuanced it gets. Um, so we're going to be covering a lot of Facts. bases here um, from nutrition to price to taste to making your own stuff at home, everything uh, over this next two part program. So it's going to get interesting. It might sound a little lame, you know, milk. I get it. You know, there's so many options and so many different brands, too, that want you to have loyalty to their brands. Um, does it matter? You know, we're going to we're going to dig into that word, man. And I mean, the thing is, too, what I'm looking forward to is maybe even. I don't know controversy and argument with our listeners, <laughs> not an argument. Okay. I don't want to say it like <laughs> that, but um, definitely willing to learn sort of your, your viewpoints on this, ladies and gentlemen, um, because according to Mark Kurlansky, the author of milk with an exclamation point, of course, um, milk has been argued about for the last 10,000 years. Um, quote unquote, it is the most right. Quote the most argued over food in human history, according to uh, Mr. Kurolansky, and even states that it was the first food to find its way into modern science, into the modern scientific laboratory. And and a lot of this controversy coming in the form of, you know, everything from breastfeeding and sort of how women nurture uh, their children to the positive and negative ways that milk impacts human health raw versus pasteurized milk, even environmental consequences and animal rights, governmental and regulatory debates, all of this come with (laughs) just talking about milk. Yeah. As Reed said, like when I was looking into it, I was like, damn, that's actually all true. Yeah. I've seen entire debates about the the use of of milk in in films and what that means and and that kind of mm. thing, uh, a clockwork orange, you know, they're, they're pounding glasses of milk and there's a lot of symbolism to it. Apparently. Interesting. I have, I haven't seen that. Okay. So, uh, that's homework from Marie Selby after the program is to go and watch that and then apply it to this conversation. Yeah, you don't have to, <laughs> it's a classic, but it's not for everyone. Got it. Okay. Okay. I'll still check it out, man. Off of your, off the strength of you. Um, and really with that reference now, I really want to understand <laughs> what you're talking about. Um, but anyways, part of the major debate, right, is, is should we be drinking this stuff 
in the first place. And ladies and gentlemen, just to clarify, at least for this first part of the program, we will be primarily focused on dairy milk. Um, by dairy milk, we are talking about the milk that comes from cows, goats, sheep, um, basically mammalian milk that we human beings uh, drink as a beverage. We use it in food preparation. We ferment it to create cheeses, um, butter through fract fractionation, right? That's what we're talking about um, for this first program. And, you know, I, I think this, I think when we typically think of drinking milk, right, we think of it as a totally normal part of human existence. Um, I think it's, it's almost a foregone conclusion that it's a natural part. You think about the classic food triangle you were taught growing up, dairy is its own component in that triangle as important, mm -hmm. if not more important than bread or uh, meat. And that, and, and it's a, yeah, as you said, its own component in that pyramid and a huge component. Um, and one thing is that this is not universal. I mean, I think from this very Eurocentric, right, point of view, which I, I think at this point, well, I don't want to say unfortunately, but we know the fact that that is sort of a dominant um, frame in which our world is viewed. And the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, that milk drinkers, dairy milk drinkers, right? The cows, the goats, the sheeps that we're drinking the milk of, they're pre predominantly of European descent. In many parts of the world, people do not drink milk. <laughs> they just don't drink dairy milk, um, mainly because like biologically, mm -hmm. it's not for us. Like it's not, um, at least as adults, right? And so the, the vast majority of human beings on this planet um, it's really not, it's not the ideal food for us. And that's mainly because of lactose intolerance. Um, and this is diff very different from a milk allergy. I know people have heard of this term, obviously. Um, but it's, it, you know, basically an allergy. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something that's triggering an immune response. Um, but this is different. We're talking about, um, individuals that cannot digest milk, right? Dairy milk, because, they lack the lactase enzyme. Basically, you have lactose in milk. It is a sugar um, that is predominant in milk. Um, and in order to break down that sugar, you need a special enzyme uh, called lactase. And um, in order to you know, properly digest this food, you have to have that enzyme. And as we get older, we actually lose that enzyme, right? When we're born um, in our so the neonatal and infant stages, and this is really throughout the mammalian sort of family and that we have this enzyme at very young ages, right? Um, but unfortunately, well, I think <laughs> uh, depending on how you look at it with the rest of the conversation, fortunately versus unfortunately, we lose that enzyme and therefore develop this intolerance, this lactose intolerance. We cannot break down the lactose. Um, and so that can be, you know, it, we just can't digest it efficiently. And that is the case for many people around the world. Right. And yeah. these are where the, the classic lactose intolerance symptoms come from, um, is not necessarily from your inability to digest that sugar, but because you can't digest that sugar when it hits your, your bowels and all the bacteria that's there, um, they're like, oh, free sugar that we can digest. Um, so they start eating up all that sugar, all that lactose that you haven't been able to digest yet. And then when the bacteria eat it up, they start producing, uh, you know, these products of metabolism like gas and that kind of stuff will will irritate your your uh, intestines and cause you to have diarrhea and gas bloating. And so that's where it comes from mm -hmm. are these byproducts of metabolism of this bacteria that's having a feast because you were unable to digest it. Say we had no bacteria in our intestines and we could survive like that, then this wouldn't be an issue. You know, the, the lactose would just pass through our system, but obviously we are not able to survive like that. Um, so yeah, that's where those classic symptoms come yeah, from. And so the, the point is, right, human beings, we're really the only mammalian species that drinks milk past weaning. In nature's, the babies of most mammals nurse only until they are ready for food, right? Solid food. Um, and then, as we said, this gene, there's a gene that basically stops our ability to digest milk by inactivating um, lactase. And 
you know, when we look at it from this mind frame um, and when we talk about this biological underpinning of us, right, not being the, the best digesters of milk, you wonder how did this happen, where this became sort of the dominant, you know, one of the dominant food groups. Um, and, and we talk about thousands of years, right? It was actually inherently dangerous to consume milk as it spoiled very quickly. Um, you know, you're talking about a very efficient route of disease transmission um, when raw milk is not properly handled, um, even to this day. But fortunately, on August, April 20th, so uh, this is another reason I saw this. I was like, oh, wow, this is the real 820. <laughs> <laughs> eight, eight, April 20th, 1862, Louis Pasteur completed the first successful test of a process that kills potentially harmful microbes in various foods and beverages. This process, of course, pasteurization, right, is used widely today to essentially disinfect beer, juice, eggs, and of course, dairy milks. Um, and so when we look at the, this process pasteurization, right, in combination with the development of the ice box earlier in the 19th century by Thomas More, um, this is what led to that dramatic increase in milk consumption throughout the world, right? Because we made it safer. Um, we were able to store um, this beverage better. And when we really look at why this is the case as far as the consumption of milk um, and other dairy products, um, it is because mammalian milk is a nutrient powerhouse, right? And we're going to talk predominantly about cow's milk, but we're talking about, um, a, a, you know, if you will, in today's terms, a superfood, right? Um, that's that is why it is so abundant. You're telling me milk was like the OG superfood back in like the 50s and 60s when they got refrigerated trucks. And exactly. Stuff. Everybody was raving about milk like yes. they are avocados and stuff today. <laughs> avocados, acai berries, all of that stuff is <laughs> I don't want to say trash compared to milk. But when we talk about the nutrient density um, in milk, um, I mean, it, it, it's an amazing food, right? It's an amazing food group. And, you know, we're talking about this substance that is primarily water, 87 percent water. The remaining 13 percent composed of proteins, fats, carbohydrates, vitamins and, and minerals. It literally has everything you need. Right. We need water <laughs> right, to carry out our, our metabolism and yeah. um, biological functions. And um, we need the proteins, the fats, the carbohydrates, we're talking about these macromolecules that are essential to life and especially our functioning as human beings. Um, and then, of course, you have vitamin, vitamins and minerals to support all of these various metabolic processes, our growth and development, um, especially when we look at things like calcium um, and even uh, the, the phosphorus that is abundant in milk. Um, this is a superfood, ladies and gentlemen. This is um, a superfood. And and that's why I think that's, that's why it's something that has been so popular for so long. Um, maybe even you can say controversial for so long is because this is what sustained people for thousands mm -hmm. of years. Um, can, can you argue that maybe we've abused it recently <laughs> as far as um, our consumption of dairy? We're going to get into that. Right. But this is why it is so abundant um, and why it is you know, a critically important, at least as far as the Western diet, I think is, is really why it's prominently featured um, in our dietary guidelines, right? And especially here in the United States. I just want to interject briefly to delve a little bit more into the difference between lactose intolerance and a milk allergy. Because um, researching for this show, I found out milk allergies are surprisingly common. And anywhere from two to 4% of children in the in the in the U.S. that are under the age of four have a milk allergy, making it essentially the most common food allergy. Um, but based on self-reporting, anywhere from up to one in 20 Americans, which is about four, almost 5% of the population, will self-report some kind of milk allergy other than lactose intolerance. Um, so clearly, this is an issue that is extremely common. But a large percentage of the children who exhibit milk allergies are able to outgrow them by the time they're, you know, around the ages of four or five. So it's really most common around the age of one or two. And then it sort of declines around three and four. And by then, you know, approximately like 75% of the kids 
who had a milk allergy when they were younger no longer have that milk allergy. Um, and then it seems to peak again. It seemed that milk allergy seems to come back around the ages of 18 to 24, similar to what we see with lactose intolerance. However, this is not based on the production of the lactase enzyme. And then also additionally, the reports of people outgrowing those milk allergies, it seems that non-Hispanic white respondents uh, seem to outgrow it significantly more than non-Hispanic black and Hispanic uh, people who do that. And another additional note is that about 70% of those, um, so most of those people with uh, cow's milk allergies can tolerate baked forms of milk because that's when the the milk is heated past the point where the proteins will become denatured. And so they seem to uh, stop triggering a allergic response. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think this makes a lot of sense in a way, um, Reed, especially not only in terms of sort of, as, as you've pointed out, as far as the allergic responses, but even right, just sort of what we see as far as the various groups, um, as we get older, right, who mm -hmm. ends up developing lactose intolerance versus who does not. Um, and then, you know, we talk about where the parts of the world that with milk consumption, dairy milk consumption was the highest. Right. We're talking about in sort of the northern hemisphere. Um, we're talking about Europe. We're talking about northern yeah. Africa, um, these places that can get, you know, very cold and um, very, you know, I don't want to say barren, but as far as crop density and the production of, you know, plant-based mm -hmm. um, foods. It can be difficult at certain point points of the year. And if you got a big old cow <laughs> that is pregnant and producing milk, then guess what? That is going to be your source of nutrition, right? And that's why that's why we see in these um, various populations um, over time, they have sort of developed this ability to metabolize lactose by having that lactase enzyme um, present throughout longer periods of the lifespan. Right. And so that's why looking at that non-Hispanic um, white response respondents, you know, being more likely to sort of lose that sensitivity and be able to to consume milk um, versus, you know, non-Hispanic black and Hispanic respondents that might not have that. Um, it seems to really fit that that sort of pattern that we've seen, you know, really throughout the world as far as milk consumption. So that's the thing is that. I mean, growing up, I thought that this was for everybody, right? I thought around the world, people consumed milk in vast quantities, um, whether it was in milk, you know, it's it's um, pure form or if it in the form of cheese, butter. Um, I just thought that this was something that was widely consumed or more widely consumed around the world, um, which, you know, it, it's not. And when we look at some of the the adverse effects of milk when we're not just talking about milk allergies um, but when we look at the data which we're going to get into then it becomes clear right i mean it's, it's not as clear as far as this being that superfood that go-to food that everybody should be consuming because that was the dominant thought at one time um that was the dominant thought at one time and that is not the norm um and and really one way actually this was um also, the result of Kurlansky, he actually mentioned, he was like, you know, this is not normal. We tend to think of those that are lactose intolerant as having some sort of pathologic condition, right? Um, when in fact, this is largely more the normal human condition. When we look at human beings throughout history and, and currently around the world today, lactose intolerance arises because, as we said, one doesn't have that enzyme um, and you don't need it right after that period of um, infancy. Um, you can metabolize or consume solid foods. You don't yeah. need that. Um, not only as a human being, or but we're just talking about mammals in general, right? And so um, I think it really is a big shift in thought. Um, at least it was for me to be like, hey, this is, you know, really why we need to consider and think about, um, especially on programs like this on Health in Harlem, think about our consumption of dairy products and the benefits versus the harms, right? Um, because there are some things that we need to know when we're consuming um, these food products. Definitely. Um, and yeah, growing up, I started having gastrointestinal issues around fourth grade. 
Um, and then my mom brought me to get tested for lactose intolerance and turned out, you know, I developed lactose intolerance right around fourth grade. Um, so what's that like nine, 10 years old or something? Um, and at the time, yeah, I was like, wow, you know, I'm so different from all my peers. You know, everybody else is drinking milk. They're all drinking their chocolate milk at lunch. The chocolate uh, milk. Yes. <laughs> and it seemed like my experience was not the typical one. But the more I've learned, the only atypical thing about the experience was actually getting tested for lactose intolerance. I feel like pretty much everybody else is lactose intolerant. They just haven't you know, gone through the test, which to be fair, you don't really need to. It's pretty obvious when you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> I'm like, I want to try it out. I mean, we've been drinking now oat milk. I can't remember the last time I had dairy milk um, recently, not even in coffee because I drink my coffee black. So I'm, I'm, I've actually thought about this read and putting this show together. I was like, damn, yo, I should try. Just get a glass of milk and see what, <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> I don't recall ever having any issues, man. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very, well, I don't know. I don't want to say very curious, but because <laughs> now I'm like afraid in a way, but, um, I am curious to try and see what happens. Um, but when we talk about this nutrient powerhouse, right? Um, uh, among the most important calcium vital for bone health, as well as the health of our nervous system, um, and even cardiovascular system functioning, right? Protein, metabolic and immune health. Um, as well as muscle health and connective tissues, vitamin B2, a.k.a. riboflavin, um, very critical to our metabolic health and functions. Vitamin B12, right, also important in metabolic health and our blood and nervous system functioning. Um, potassium, critically important in cardiac functioning in our nervous system. Phosphorus, um, which is, you know, very important as far as our bone health, um, along with calcium um, and energy production. Um, and then we even have some vitamins in there, vitamin A for our skin and eye health, vitamin D, um, which is often added um, uh, in processing and can be vital for our bone and endocrine health as well. Um, and when we think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? Because we're talking about um, baby cows growing, right? So it has to be rich in all of the nutrients that would support critical systems that are rapidly developing in a calf. Um, especially when we talk about the nervous system. So all those fats that can be used for formation of cell membranes and myelinating axons in the nervous system, right? So they can conduct nervous impulses very well. Calcium for bone growth and development, protein for muscle growth and development, um, and also formation of hormones and enzymes that will allow that um, GI tract to mature where they can metabolize you know, other foods, more solid foods outside um, of their mother. This is why it is such a rich source of nutrition. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, it's essentially why milk is sort of the one stop shop when it comes to nutritional support, um, even for adults. Right. It's really hard to come by a more nutrient dense food or beverage. Um, plus, it, it, it tastes hella good. <laughs> like yeah. That's like the, the cherry on top, you know. The cherry on top of your milk um, is that it's good in addition to all of these um, nutrients that you get from it. And I think if we look back, especially um, in history, man, when we talk about those, right, these areas of the world that might not have been as bountiful as far as um, food production, crop production. Um, if you had something like this that you can consume, this is why, right, this sort of debate has been going on for thousands of years is how good is milk for us for our for the human body you know outside of those earlier stages um in life and if especially you look in sort of here in the united states we had some real challenges from a nutritional standpoint um in the you know 18th 19th even early of 20 early 20th century um where nutrition especially when we talk about children um especially when we talked about young adults um when we talk about being ready for you know, having our military ready for wars or the workforce ready to produce goods um, and services. Um, if you could, you know, preserve and, and um, protect through pasteurization milk, a glass of milk versus shipping around a bunch of crops, um, 
you know, it's probably easier to to handle the milk um, and stuff. And I think that's why it became such oh, yeah. an important and, and we'll get into it as well. Um, you know, as far as especially when we look at bones, um, it, it really just became that food staple for us here in this country. Um, and we're going to get into that. Yeah. And I like how you make the distinction about how it became that food staple um, and sort of made up for nutrient deficits that we were having because there has been a study, obviously, you know, there's a lot of calcium in, in uh, cow's milk and it's, you know, very necessary for bone growth and development. Um, but in a study that compared two different parts of the world and the incidence of bone fractures, they found essentially a very similar or not significant difference between the two areas uh, and the amount of fractures based on whether they consumed milk or did not consume milk. So that just would lead me to believe that they're probably getting their necessary calcium from other sources, potentially because they live mm -hmm. in a more fertile area. Um, so yeah, no doubt that it's, it's necessary, but comparing these, obviously the people who don't drink milk are getting their necessary nutrients from another entity. You know, it's interesting that you brought that contrast to what's happening in the rest of the world, because if you look at our current recommendations, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, if we look at the United States, yeah, the Department of Agriculture, um, it is currently recommended that adults and children nine years of age and older get three ounce servings of milk or dairy equivalents. Um, so that's, you know, um, cheese, yogurt, kefir, right? It's, that's recommended per day. Three eight ounce servings of milk or dairy equivalent per day. And what is the main rationale Man, for? Destroy me. Yo, I'm, I'm like, I, I didn't realize. I, know, I was like, <laughs> well, I'm pretty. I mean, really, the current average intake amongst adults is 1.6 servings um, per day. But what is the rationale, right, for maintaining that relatively high intake of dairy milk throughout the lifespan? And it's not for brawn, it's not for brains, but it's mainly for the bones. Um, as Reed was just talking about, right, mm -hmm. the bones, this increased calcium intake um, was thought to theoretically be of benefit in preventing things like osteoporosis. Um, hip fractures later in life as a result of decreased um, bone density, right? And especially when we talk about women. Um, and yeah, so this is this is why it is such a huge deal, right? Or at least why um, these recommendations were put forth as far as our dietary, dietary guidelines um, here in this country. Um, and that is in addition to it being, as we said, nutrient dense, right? So areas um, in our country or populations that are low income, right? We're talking about a hard hitting food um, and food group that can fill many gaps um, when we talk about, you know, issues with nutrition um, in various commit com uh, communities. And, and so, yeah, man, I remember that that carton of milk, right? Um, getting my free lunch, my school lunch, mm -hmm. um, which is paid for by the government. I remember having my tray <laughs> and that was a staple on the tray that you always got a carton of milk, whether it was chocolate milk, whether it was skim milk, whether it was, you know, whole milk. Um, there was always that carton of milk that was on every lunch tray. It was on every breakfast tray. I'm pretty sure if there was dinner, they probably would have found a way to incorporate that, um, you know, onto that plate somehow. And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And then you yes. had your pizza. Mm -hmm. You had your mac yeah, and cheese. That's right. You yes. had your ice cream sandwich for dessert. Damn. You got hoop three you servings back. in one meal. <laughs> Actually, no, but I think that's true. <laughs> um, so it's multiple, right, dairy components on those plates um, at any given time, you know, almost every day of the week. Um, yeah, as, as Reed said, whether you're getting pizza and milk, mac and cheese and milk, um, yogurt and, and probably milk, <laughs> like it was always something. A couple of, yeah, you're right, like at least two dairy items um, that were on those plates and uh you know as far as what is actually true right mm -hmm. um well now we we really have to look at this um because now we've learned a lot more as far as right these sort of recommendations and what actually happens um in our bodies and unfortunately there really is no concrete evidence that you know that is the case that increased calcium consumption 
um, especially in the form of uh, milk consumption, that that is going to, you know, increase our bone mineral density, strengthen our bones, prevent hip, fra hip fractures. If anything, we are seeing sort of these paradoxical results, as Reed mentioned, right, where in countries with relatively high milk and calcium consumption, we have the highest rates of hip fractures, mm -hmm. right? It is is very odd um, findings. In a meta-analysis, um, they, they looked at total calcium intake that ranged from 550 milligrams per day to more than 1,000 milligrams per day. Um, and, you know, there was really no relation to the risk of hip fractures, um, regardless of sort of the consumption of calcium. Um, also, the study is on which the U.S. recommendations are based, right? They had many limitations, very small sample sizes with, you know, one case, um, only 155 subjects, and they were also a very short duration. Um, and when we look at sort of the theories behind establishing a calcium bank, right? So this used to be um, the thought that, hey, with the consumption of calcium, large amounts of calcium, um, earlier in life, you can have sort of a bank, right, a store of calcium that at later points in the lifespan where we would have increased bone mineral density that would prevent things like hip fractures um, later in life because you've established this bank growing up. But we're finding that that's not true, right? Um, you know, multiple studies examining calcium supplementation and increased consumption of milk and dairy products have shown that the threshold for calcium intake is probably lower than previously thought, and that increased intake of calcium um, via supplements and through dairy consumption, they really show little benefit um, by way of bone mineralization. Um, and so we, we have some things that we have to contend with, ladies and gentlemen, um, you know, some, I don't want to say falsehoods, but misconceptions, you know, that um, these sort of operating theories that we're finding, right, when we actually look closer and when the the studies are done um, and done properly, we're finding that it is not as beneficial as we thought it might have been, especially when we talk about, um, you know, our bones, which is the primary reason why we have these recommendations. And I think that also brings up the point about, um, you know, nutrition and the idea of what humans need on a daily basis and how that really needs to be updated and, and reinvestigated because, you know, the classic 2000 calorie diet that we all follow that all of our nutrition labels are based off of is based off of like a 1968 thing where they took a survey of people and they were like, how much do you eat in a day? All right. Do you eat anywhere? The average is about anywhere from like, you know, 1,900 to 2,200. All right, let's make it 2000. And I think, uh, Probably the calcium intake yes. recommendations are probably not too, you know, are probably just about as ancient as uh, the 2000 calorie diet. So, oh, yeah, I think man. definitely some work needs to be done there. Yeah, we, 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 have, we have some work to do. Um, there's no question. And part of that is just having, you know, conversations like this. Um, but when we, we talk about right, what are some of the other benefits or at least um, sort of the perceived mm -hmm. benefits or or things that we sort of thought, I think, in the. Um, medical and scientific community that were benefits of milk consumption. Um, well, when we talk about weight control, right, um, we, we've definitely seen sort of this move towards dairy products, milk, whether it is just, um, you know, drinking milk for a better figure or weight control, um, you know, the, the good old um, got milk commercials mm -hmm. um, in the past. Yeah, or Activia. Um, milk does a, yeah, Activia, Activia commercials. Yep. And milk does a body good, you know, from the 80s or these mm -hmm. public public health awareness campaigns um, that were really just, you know, focused on trying to increase the consumption of milk and dairy products. Even mm -hmm. the whole fact of like milk mustaches, right? A mustache yes. is a symbol of, of growth and masculinity and, and virili virility milk gives you that yep. mustache. But but <laughs> when it comes to the effects of dairy consumption on weight control, um, a meta-analysis of 29 randomized controlled trials so showed no effect on body weight. Um, only consumption, actually only consumption of yogurt seemed to confer benefits when it came to decreased weight. Um, and it's believed to, to, you know, to be due to yogurt's effect on the microbiome. 
But when we look at the consumption of milk, when you look at cheese, um, there was really no benefit when it came to um, sort of these effects on the weight. Um, in children, the consumption of low fat milk actually led to increases, increases in the body mass index. Right. So they gained weight when compared to the consumption of full fat or two percent milk. Um, and, and really overall prospective cohort studies and randomized trials just do not show a clear effect of milk intake on the body weight of children or adults. Um, so that's another sort of misconception um, that we can really, you know, deal with, man, that the the superfood, you know, in addition to having all these nutrients and stuff, um, it does not <laughs> magically cause you to lose weight. Um, and, and even as far as the yogurt consumption, right, you know, may, maybe we see some benefits as far as weight loss with the consumption of yogurt. But even with those studies, there might have been some confounders um, as far as individuals. Right. Maybe con individuals that consume yogurt are just more active or have other things that they're doing that contribute to that weight loss. Um, and therefore, right, mm -hmm. the yogurt not being the cause of them losing weight or the main reason why they lost weight. So, yeah. Um, definitely some things that we got to sort out there, especially after years of commercials marketing yogurt towards the more active crowd, you know, so that could be just a correlation mm -hmm. in itself that people who are into yoga have been <laughs> more susceptibly told that yogurt is good for your health if you're into yoga and being active. Yes. Um, and, and that's the thing. I mean, for individuals um, that maybe. You know, we talk about the lactose intolerance issue. Um, yes, through sort of the the fermentation um, process, we have the breakdown of um, mm -hmm. lactose, right, um, into more digestible forms, right, more digestible sugars for individuals. Um, and so they can do better, man. They can actually, you know, eat that and, and maybe feel a little bit more satiated because it's not running right through them. Um, and so they, they, not to say, ladies and gentlemen, there are no benefits to yogurt. We also know um, about the beneficial bacteria that we get um, with that. Right. Sort of the, um, you know, probiotics, if you will, that can be beneficial um, with consumption. So not to say we're not throwing that out as a totally unhealthy um, or unuseful food group. But we do want you to be aware, right, that the it's not that clear as far as the, the benefits. And we talk about wheat in particular, um, you know, it might not be the end all and be all of that conversation. Yeah. Um, but when I was younger and growing up lactose intolerant, I couldn't drink milk. One of the things that I did have was yogurt. And I think maybe that made up for the nutrients that I was missing, you know, from not being able to drink milk. Mm. Uh, just make sure that whatever yogurt you get is, you know, made using bacteria so whether it says live cultures on the ingredients list or uh if it's some other kind of more natural mm -hmm. bacteria uh just make sure that you know it has that in there because that bacteria similar to the bacteria in your gut is eating up all that lactase lactose with its lactase enzyme um so by the time you eat it mm -hmm. it's already broken down into more simple sugars that you can consume it's like you're eating. Well, I don't want to say the poop of <laughs> the bacteria. Yeah, I mean, essentially, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like leftovers, it's like man. Pre-digested. Yeah, yeah, it's like how cows, you know, they spit stuff. They spit the, they digest <laughs> it in one stomach for a little bit, and then it comes back up and goes down. It's like eating pre-chewed food, essentially. There you go. They did some of the work for <laughs> you. That's the way I look at it. They did some of my work, and it yeah. makes my job easier um, in breaking that stuff down. Um, but yeah, so what are some of the other benefits? Um, so effects on blood pressure and the risk of cardiovascular disease, right? This too is less clear. Um, in prospective cohort studies, consumption of either whole milk or low fat milk was associated with increased coronary artery disease or stroke. Um, but really, if anything, a lot of these risks seem to be associated with comparison foods, right? So it's not just the milk mm -hmm. per se, but all the other stuff that you eat that in combination could yeah. right increase your risk of of having um, adverse cardiac um, events or strokes. Right. Exactly. So we're talking heart attacks. We're talking not strokes. all dairy products are equal. 
Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's important to point out not all dairy products are equal. You're not getting the same, it's the same health benefits from drinking a glass of milk and eating a slice of cheesecake. It's extremely different. One is going to put you at a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease. That is a great example, uh, Reed. Thank you for that. And and also the fact that, right, when we talk about, and we've talked about this on prior programs, um, just sort of the general rules, right, processed foods, um, especially when we talk about things like processed red meats, um, those things, mm-hmm. right, or very salty foods, which uh, that, you know, a bulk of that being like the processed stuff that we just mentioned, um, refined sugars, like these things. Um, so if we're consuming that in addition to uh, the dairy products, right, we can see increases in those risks of developing heart disease and stroke um, versus if we're talking about a person with a maybe a more plant based diet more whole foods, right? So whole fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, those per- people will end up falling on the lower side of the spectrum as far as risk for um, those adverse events, car- heart attacks, strokes. Um, and so really it's not just the dairy, but it's also what you are eating in combination with it, right? Um, that's that's really mm-hmm. what it boils down to. And when we talk about the risks of type two diabetes, type one diabetes in children. Um, this too remains unclear and intake of dairy products has been associated with a moderate decrease in the risk of type two diabetes. Um, but you know, in larger studies, um, even that association was not very, very clear. Um, but one thing that really surprised me Reed was the cancer risks, um, the cancer risks, it was something that I really just was not. I remember hearing about this stuff, um, but it, as far as the the risks that we're taking in terms of, um, you know, possibly increasing the risks of certain cancers with milk consumption, that was really surprising to me, man. And I, I really don't think that this is something mm-hmm. that is is really out there as far as individuals, you know, knowing this and making, um, you know, choices, you know, making informed choices about what they're putting into their bodies. Definitely. Yeah. And and so there were strong correlations with rates of breast cancer. Um, right. So strong correlations, meaning increased uh, consumption of uh, dairy milk and dairy milk products. Right. Um, there were mm-hmm. associations seen with increase increases in things like breast cancer, prostate cancer and other cancers. Um, when we talk about just sort of the way milk is produced, right, both in the cow and even the post-production processing. Um, one of the, because uh, the cows are being milked, right, a lot of times when they are pregnant, there are a lot of hormones around. Uh, things like insulin-like growth factor, um, various progestins and estrogens. Um, and these things can lead to um, increased cancer risk, right? And so we're, we're consuming those those products, right? Not only are we getting all of the, as we said, all of the nutrition that we talked about, the proteins, the fats, the carbs, um, the various vitamins and minerals, but we're also getting these hormones. Um, and, and to increase, right, there are some practices where to increase the amount of milk production um, in these cows, um, they are even given hormones, right? The, the animals are actually given hormones to increase milk production. So not only do they have that basal level of milk production, I mean, um, hormone production, you know, just off of their um, pregnancy state, but increased hormones to increase that milk production. Um, and and we are learning that these things can be sort of drivers of cancer. Um, one thing that was surprising, though, is that milk might be productive against colon cancer. True. Yeah. And in this scenario, we're talking about like industrial milk, you know, from from big farms. We're not talking Mm -hmm. necessarily about raw milk straight out of the cow or, you know, maybe a small farm that has just like a single grass fed cow. I mean, there's definitely some hormones in that milk, but these studies were conducted looking at sort of like industrial uh, production level of, of milk. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's just something to be aware of. I think in addition to, as we said, really making choices about um, how much milk we drink, but also where is it coming from? um, I think we need to take those things into consideration. 
right as we go forward um when we look at as we said the, this cancer risk you know just be mindful too i don't want to <laughs> get people thinking that they're going to cure you know or prevent colon cancer but yes we saw this association there has been this association that it might um actually decrease mm -hmm. um colon cancer risk um and then finally just total mortality right just looking at sort of overall uh, deaths and how it relates to individuals milk consumption um and there was a big meta-analysis featuring 29 studies in which it looked at the intake of dairy milk um, including the total intake of pretty much all dairy foods and there was no association with overall mortality um, recent analyses of large cohorts right that followed individuals for three decades so we're talking 30 years in which some of these studies um, followed these uh, this population of people whole milk was associated with a higher mortality in comparison to low fat milk and cheese um, but you know just remember that uh, as we said before consumption of processed red meats um, and eggs were associated with higher mortality than consumption of dairy milk and there was similar mortality observed with the consumption of unprocessed red meat poultry and fish right so dairy pretty much you know consumption of dairy hung out about the same um, area or rates as far as the consumption of unprocessed red meat, poultry, fish. Um, and really, if anything, that was, you know, lower as far as overall mortality, it was, and I think that, I don't think this is surprising at all, but plant-based sources of protein had a lower associated mortali mortality in comparison to um, dairy milk. Um, so overall, right, does not, we don't see any data showing an increased mortality with the consumption of dairy products. But I think it really points to kind of what we alluded to before, and that it's really a combination of things that you're consuming. Um, so dairy milk plus, right? It's dairy milk plus whatever else you're eating that could, you know, I think move that needle as far as increased mortality versus, you know, something along the norms or even lower mortality when we talk about plant-based foods um, being consumed with dairy products. Yeah, Mo, I thought this was going to be a program about yeah, milk man. and like recommendations based on that. And now you're telling me I can't, I, I need to forego my burgers. It's not cool, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. Well, maybe, uh, you know, as far as um, Judaism and I know what one of the rules, right? You can't mix milk and meat. Maybe that is <laughs> there's some wisdom uh, from thousands of years to say that that's why we should not do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if anything, I think it makes sense, right? I think the lessons that I take from this: too much of any one thing is a bad yeah. thing. Um, so three eight ounce glasses of milk per day is probably not the best practice, right? Now, can you get away with one, um, you know, one glass? I think that's fine. As we said, this is a, a, a a superfood, mm -hmm. right? And there are days when I'm running ragged, you know, don't have a chance to get lunch, or maybe I did not eat breakfast, and maybe a, a quick milk-based smoothie would do the trick, yeah. right? As far as giving me exactly what I need to carry on my day, I'm not going to sit here and tell individuals not to drink dairy milk. Um, there are some things we need to be mindful even of. Even a right? bowl of cereal, depending on what yeah. cereal it is, you know, big if on that cereal. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, a bowl of cereal and milk, you know, that's a quick meal that will satisfy a lot yes. of nutrient requirements. For that's you. a quick meal. It's a staple. It. It's a cultural thing. I mean, you know, I think some of the, the best times in life for me, especially growing up as a kid, man, was Saturday morning cartoons and a bowl of cereal and milk. <laughs> and it was just like, that will never change. I will do that mm -hmm. with my daughters. Um, I mean, now we're drinking, you know, some of the alternatives that are out there, which we'll talk about um, in our next program in part two of this this series. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to say that dairy milk has no place in a diet, um, I don't think we can say that. But it, I think it's definitely be it's worth being aware, right, of sort of the purported benefits and what's actually true. I think we really need to understand that stuff. And that's why I'm glad that we tackled this. It's a difficult topic, I think. And as we said, a lot of controversy surrounding it, right? Because you might hear studies sort of going totally against some of the stuff that we talked about um, in the near future. 
Um, mm-hmm. But again, the lessons that I'm taking home from this is that everything in moderation, right, including milk. Um, so that one ounce, one eight ounce glass is yeah. probably enough, especially if we're talking about, you know, at least from the old rationale, right, in terms of maintaining these high levels of intake of milk in order to prevent, you know, osteoporosis and bone fractures, you know, hip fractures in the future. Um, we just don't need that much dairy for that. If anything, you want to talk about getting calcium into your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, again, a milk plus conversation. Yeah, maybe you get some milk in there, but there are other sources of calcium, as Reed stated earlier, right? Kale, broccoli, um, other fresh green leafy vegetables, um, beans, right? Those things can give you plenty of calcium um, to supplement your diet, you know. Uh, And then we talk about things like vitamin D, right? You don't just need milk for that. We can go out in the sun and make our own vitamin D. Uh, We can do vitamin D supplements, Mm -hmm. You know, there are various ways to get these things in our diet and not just through milk. That's the I think the big take home for this segment is that it's milk plus. Right. And maybe not that much milk. (laughs) Yeah. As far as dairy milk. (laughs) And it also might seem kind of obvious, but, you know, not all dairy products are created. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between a pint of ice cream and a pint of yogurt. There's a difference between even in these studies, there's a difference between drinking whole milk and drinking, you know, part skim milk. Yes. Um, so, yeah, definitely be aware and maybe lower your consumption of certain dairy items and increase your consumption of other ones. You know, butter, maybe one to lower, uh, <laughs> at least in my case, for sure. I do love my butter. Yeah, I mean, I'm not giving up butter. Come on now. Stop. <laughs> there are limits. Like I said. <laughs> Everything in moderation. Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll increase my ghee consumption instead of butter. <laughs> there you go, ghee and uh, yeah. It, there's there's ways <laughs> to make it work. That's the way I feel. Um, so Maurice Donovan Selby will be consuming dairy products yeah. um, for the remainder of his lifespan, but in moderation, ladies and gentlemen. So with that said, I'm gonna close us out. Um, thank you, Reed, for joining me. Um, and I think I really enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot, um, from this segment and looking forward to the next part, actually to learn about the various milk alternatives. I mean, there are even discussions on high man and the government talking about, we're not even going to call that milk anymore. Mm-hmm. All this plant-based stuff. So yeah, <laughs> I think there's probably some, uh, industry behind that, that move. But anyway, long story short, um, I want to also, um, pay homage to Mark Kurlansky, author of Milk. That's Milk with an exclamation point. You know, we, we definitely appreciate his book and use that for a basis of a lot of research for this segment. Um, and also, um, I will be posting in the podcast um, sort of the sources for our, um, our information um, where you can sort of learn for yourself as well. Um, and also, I do want to give a shout out to um, Dr. Walter C. Willett at Al um, for their article, Milk and Health, which appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine um, in 2020. And yeah, thank them for that, as that was also another um, vital resource for the production of this program. And with all of that said, ladies and gentlemen, this show, as always, is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.